a couple of things, a couple of updates for people in terms of prayer requests that we have had. Um, while I'm arranging my all my stuff up here, we've had. Uh, I, I heard back from Brett Nasworth yesterday. I think that was sent out that he is still in the hospital. His uh, oldest brother was killed in the accident last weekend. They had the service for him in Louisiana uh, yesterday, I believe. And then I heard from, got an update from Eager today in relation to um, Julia's uh, kidney problem. They went to Kiev and they had a various tests run, and it's more than just the falling kidney problem that there seems to be some other things, but they have to run even more tests. So we need to keep uh, both of them in um, in prayer so that um, we, keep, we keep them before the throne of grace. Okay. So those two requests, and we also reminder about the men's uh, prayer. Every, everybody did a great job praying for the camp out. It looks like it's going to be a dry weekend. Now we pray that it's going to be a cooler weekend, okay, a little bit cooler. So uh, uh, Lord answered the rain prayer. Now we need to pray it will be a little bit cooler, okay, that a front will come through. We also need to pray for um, um, we have a number of folks that listen that are part of uh, the extended congregation who live in Florida and uh, in the path of the storm. So we need to be in prayer for them. Uh, Seems like there's a couple of other announcements that um, are not coming to my mind right now. Somehow along the way, my announcement sheet that I left up here on the pulpit has disappeared. So that's gone. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can uh, make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord, that we are walking by the Spirit, walking in the truth, walking in the light. And the way to do that is to confess sin. Instantly, we are forgiven of those sins we mentioned and cleansed from all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together and go to the throne of grace. Our Father, we mentioned several prayer requests as we come before your throne of grace. We want to pray for our nation. We want to pray for this election. We pray for wisdom on the part of many, many races that go up and down the um, ballot box from local elections all the way up to the White House. We pray for wisdom. We pray that believers will turn out and vote, that uh, this is part of the way in which we function as light unto the world and having an influence that this country can be blessed by association. And we need to be involved because this is a a nation that is uh, built upon the 
uh, participation of the citizens. And as citizens in this nation, we are to uh, function to your honor and glory to the fullest extent uh, possible. Father, we pray for those we know. We pray for those in Florida that many people are going to lose a lot of property and uh, sustain damage. We pray for uh, this storm that it would uh, whatever turn aside and not create the uh, damage that is expected and that especially for those who are uh, close to many of us who are family members uh, and also those who are extended members of this congregation who live in the path of the storm that you would watch over them protect them and provide for them during this uh, this time of uh, uh, weather testing Father, we pray for those who are ill. We pray especially for uh, Julia Smallyar. We pray for others who are facing financial crises. We pray that you would sustain and provide for them. And for others that we know of that are facing surgeries, that are facing uh, threatening, life-threatening diseases, that you would uh, comfort them, comfort their families, provide wise doctors for them, that they may make wise decisions. Pray for us as we study your word today that you'd help us to sort our way through the material we're studying and come to understand its its significance and application for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're going to go back through what I covered last week in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, only because we need to think about something. Today's sort of a, a test, pop quiz time, practical application. So probably the first 15 or 20 minutes, we're going to do a review because I want to get the key information back into our heads so we're thinking about it. And then the last part of the class is going to be a practical application. We're going to have a little critical thinking uh, drill as I take you through some material to help us think through something. That's a question that I think everybody in this room has asked if not once, they've asked it many, many times. It's one that has uh, that I've wondered about and asked questions about and taken different views on since I was in high school, and I'm sure that's true for many of you. Last week, as we looked at this passage in First Peter chapter two, thirteen through seventeen, the topic was honoring the king. We're to honor the king. That's clear from uh, Romans thirteen one through seven. It's true from true from our passage in First Peter two thirteen through seventeen. We're to submit to authority over us, and we have to understand what does that mean. And we see different categories of involvement: submission to a parent, submission to a uh, husband, uh, submission to other areas of authority mentioned in Scripture, a slave to a master, and submission to. Uh, the authorities, the governing authorities that God has set over us. And I think whatever we say about one has to be said about the other. Now, the reason I say that is because sometimes we want to waffle a little bit on some some or one or two of these authorities and not apply the same principles in the same way to every sphere. And I think that's a, that's a categorical error. Uh, one reason I'm going back to this was that I received a question last week and it's a very good question, and I got to thinking about it and said, well, I need to address this question, and I want to do a little more homework on this, and I haven't in a while. And this is the, the question that came in 
last Friday after our Bible class on Thursday night. And it's a long question, but I'm not going to get into all the details of the question because the, the core question is what's covered in the, in the first three lines. Based on your dissertation last night on the obligation of all citizens to obey divine authority, um, or should really read to uh, obey governing authority, regardless of how evil the leadership, my question is, quote, were our founders, that is the American founding fathers, were our founders justified in defiance of British tyranny, unquote? Now, that's an important question, and what I like about that question, you've heard it phrased a different way. You've heard the question phrased this way. You've heard the question phrased, were we justified in rebelling against the King of England? That is a wrong question. Any question that includes the word rebellion or revolt is the wrong question. And and, and this is a good lesson in critical thinking because words really do matter. And how you set up a question shapes the direction and flow of the of the answer. And sometimes it gets us right off on the wrong course when we ask the wrong question. And that's that's not the correct question. In fact, there is a an article that I printed out that I will refer to uh, several times uh, by David Barton. David Barton is very well known as a as a historian. He's done some wonderful work in uh, reminding Christians that our nation's history was built on a solid Christian biblical heritage. And he's done some great research. I think when I read some of his earlier work, uh, I wasn't so sure, having come out of a church history background where I did my doctoral work at Dallas Seminary in the area of history, in the area of church history, and studying these things. But like so many things that I didn't know when I went through seminary, and that were becoming evident was there the evangelical camp is really split between two polar opposites. And one side of this, this argument is the view that, that um, uh, America really wasn't founded on Christian principles. It wasn't founded by Christians. These men were primarily deists or they were uh, primarily influenced by the Enlightenment. And so what you have is a lot of Enlightenment ideas that are the primary influence on the Founding Fathers, not the Bible. Well, people like Donald Lutz, I've quoted his material before. Back in the 80s, he was a a political science professor at the University of Houston. He and his students ran a lot lot of studies, computer programs, analyzing the speeches and the diaries and the letters that were, and other things that were written by uh, the founding uh, fathers to analyze wh- what where they got their material, and they uh, analyzed about five or six thousand uh, different uh, uh, pieces of information, and discovered that the vast majority of source material didn't come from John Locke or Montesquieu or one of the Enlightenment thinkers. But a vast majority came from the Bible, came from the especially Old Testament books, uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, primarily the books of the law. And they weren't trying to create a theonomy. There's a terrible book out that's been out for seven or eight years now that is written by a guy who who really has 
a, a, a hatred for evangelical Christianity, and it's called American Theocracy, and the guy's name who wrote it is he's Kevin Phillips, and it's just an awful book. And I can't critique areas where he discusses the oil business or, or the, our economy, but I can critique the section where he deals with with the influence of Christianity on the religious right, and the guy is 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 full of prunes, and he has misinterpreted uh, a tremendous amount of information because he doesn't understand a biblical framework or the role that the Bible played at the time. It's very important to also to understand how the Bible was understood and how the Bible was interpreted in this 18th century and in the 17th century. Remember, they're they're not that far out of the. Uh, out of the Reformation, and they're still trying to uh, l- consistently interpret the Scripture in light of a, uh, a a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation. So they've got some erroneous ideas there. But but the Bible's a primary source, and and like the second or third prim- third primary source, which I didn't bring my slides with me with the specifics, was from John Locke. But John Locke was raised in a Puritan home. And a lot of the quotes that they have from John Locke are actually secondary quotes or allusions to the Bible. So the Bible plays a huge role in influencing their ideas. And like I've said before, and it's important to understand this, is that doesn't mean that every founding father is a Christian or that those that are a Christian to some extent that they have a sound biblical theology or even an accurate understanding of the gospel. Uh, they, they, weren't, they didn't have theological training per se, and they weren't theologians, but they were influenced by a Judeo-Christian ethic. That was the worldview, just like today. The worldview that shapes the thinking of every one of the people in this room is postmodern relativism. Every, none of you have escaped it. I haven't escaped it. We, we live in that environment. It, it, it influences us in ways that we're totally unaware of every single day, and we have to fight it. That's our, that's our battle of sanctification in, in this generation. In their generation, it was the flip side. Even the unbelievers were influenced by a Judeo-Christian theistic worldview because that was the worldview of the day. So even if you have uh, someone who's one of the founding fathers who was not a Christian, um, such as Tom, probably Thomas Jefferson was not a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, he's the only one who possibly could be a deist, but he's not that far. He he really isn't. That that's that's mi- really a misrepresentation by the secular uh, secular historians. He doesn't go that far as at pure. In fact, by the time Jefferson comes along in the 1770s and 1780s, deism is basically dead. He's heavily influenced by Enlightenment thought, though. But most of the founding founding fathers were influenced to one degree of the Bible, and no matter who they were, even if they were Jefferson, they, they're living in the framework of a theistic worldview, of a Judeo-Christian theistic worldview. So they may be thinking more like a Christian than a lot of uh, Christians are today because they've been so influenced by a postmodern worldview. Okay, so worldview of the culture shapes people's shapes people's thinking. So 
uh, we have to pay attention to some of those issues. But what you have on one side, as I was saying, is you have a, a group of uh, neo-evangelical uh, hostile to dispensationalism usually, hostile to evang- fundamental evangelicalism, biblical evangelicalism, uh, scholars, historians, whatever. And they say, no, 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 no. All these founding fathers were just influenced by the Enlightenment. Then you have others that have, that, that, that say that, that, that we're influenced by a, a Christian influence. Barton has played a huge role. My only criticism of Barton is I think he overstates the case several times in several ways. I'll show you a couple of examples uh, as I go through this. I think he so overstates the case uh, that he makes it sound like these guys are all Sunday school teachers and uh, they're all you know citing Bible verses every day and re- getting up every morning and reading their Bibles. And 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 that's not true either. But but. The reality is closer to him than it is the other guys. Okay, so we just have to have that as as a little bit of of sort of historical background, and that comes to play in understanding how they looked at the issue of authority and submission to the authority of the king, because this was something that had been going on for quite a few centuries since the Protestant Reformation, this had been a major issue in the thinking of pastors and theologians and Reformation leaders, because uh, especially in the early 1500s, their life is on the line for preaching the gospel. Okay, I want to make that very clear. What were they doing? wasn't that they were voting Republican. It wasn't that they were voting Democrat. It wasn't that they were uh, standing up for the American flag. The issue was they were preaching the gospel. They were telling people that Jesus Christ is the only way, that transubstantiation was a heresy, that justification by works was a heresy, that the idea that you could merit the merit of Christ, which is a Roman Catholic doctrine, was a heresy. Uh, They taught these things, and that uh, made them not only heretics, but because of the union of church and state in Germany, France, and and, uh, England, it made them traitors to to the king because they were preaching the gospel. So we have to understand that's the starting point. And so there are those who confuse that civil disobedience, which is biblical civil disobedience in the pattern of Daniel, in the pattern of the uh, Egyptian midwives, uh, in the pattern of others who, who did what God said to do rather than what the king said to do in the pattern of Peter and John who said, uh, in, in Acts chapter 4, that we are going to serve God rather than man. So let me review quickly about the first 10 slides from last week. The command here is going to deal with submission. The biblical category isn't dealing with rebellion. It's dealing with submission. That's why I appreciate the way that question was formulated. It stated, were our founders justified in defiance? Now, defiance I don't like. Defiance is an emotive word. A defiance involves, um, may involve emotional overtones that I don't see in, in the Bible is talking about submission. So the, the correct way to approach the question is, were they justified in not submitting to the British government? Okay, that's the question. Were they justified in not submitting 
to the British government because now we're using the language of Scripture in term, and we're talking apples and apples and not apples, apples and oranges. So the believer's responsibility is to submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, not for the king's sake. That's important. One of the one of the views you have two basic views that are presented in the late in the sixteen to seventeen hundreds. And one of those is the only option is to go with the divine right of kings, which says that whatever the king says, he's the mouthpiece of God, and so what he says, God says. Okay, that's not biblical. That's not what this passage is saying. We're to submit to the king for the Lord's sake because of the uh, role of authority within the angelic conflict and other things that we've studied. And this is a word that's always used as that word hupotasso. It's the same word, Romans 13. Romans 13 says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now, what we see here in First uh, Peter 2.13, uh, whether it says, submit yourselves uh, to every ordinance of man, whether to the king as supreme or to the governor. Now, that's important. And the words that are used here in the Greek are very important. He doesn't say to Caesar. He uses a broader general term for the highest executive authority that was known at that time. That is the king, the Basilois. Okay, now he says the governor. And the term that he uses for governor is, is not uh, the procurator, the proconsul, uh, the tax collector. Those are all subsets of the governor. And um, just as a side point that you should remember is that for the average Christian in Pontus or Bithynia or Ephesus or Thessalonica or in Caesarea or Tiberias, when he had a problem with the government, it wasn't it wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't going to be Tiberius, it wasn't going to be uh, Claudius in Rome, it wasn't going to be Nero in Rome or Caligula in Rome. He was going to have a problem with, with the policies of the regional governor, the procurator, the proconsul, whichever uh, position it was. And this guy was not a guy that was free from corruption or free from uh, personal vendettas against the people over whom he ruled. Pilate was horrible that way. Pilate was, was, the Romans considered Pilate bad, and that's why they eventually recalled him to Rome. So, so when, when Peter is saying this, he doesn't stop by saying whether the king is supreme, and we're just talking about the federal government or the executive branch. He's talking about the lower level administrators of the kingdom or the empire or whomever that are ruling the regional subdivisions as the representative of the uh, of the king and they are to be submitted to and and in many of these cases they were not just they weren't fair uh, the the classic pattern we're going to see is the illustration of Jesus and Jesus submits to Pilate who is is evil and wicked and if and if he hadn't you wouldn't have your salvation uh Another thing that we need to point out here is that, he, that in these in First Peter especially, it's clear that he's talking about the person who holds the position, not just the position. Okay, remember that. That's very important. He's not talking about the office as being established by God. He's talking about the person who's holding the office is, is there under God's permissive will. Now, God puts a lot of people, we po- I pointed that out last time, good and bad, into those positions. He not only ordains the position of president or king or governor 
or proconsul, but it's the person that's there under the uh, permissive will of God. Romans 13 is saying the same thing. Um, so we saw that this involves the word authorities in Scripture, involves a lot of different people, Israel's high priests, those in charge of the synagogue, members of the Sanhedrin, a, a judge, pagan officials, uh, even demons have different ranks of, of authorities. Okay, so that word, uh, God establishes all, all of those authorities. And so the believer has a responsibility to submit to the ordinance of God. The same thing said in Romans 13.2 to these laws. And some of them may at some level be unjust. Okay, now listen. There's different categories of unjust laws. If you, in my opinion, probably in your opinion, if you have a an income tax system, a graduated income. I think if you have a graduated income tax system, it's unjust, period, over and out. If you have an income tax system that is taking 30 or 40 or 50% of your earnings as taxes, I think that's unjust. But we don't have examples of tax revolts in Scripture outside of one that we all know of, which is when the northern kingdom... uh, divorced itself from the southern kingdom but that was for other reasons we don't have authorized tax revolts and the taxes that were imposed by the babylonians that were you know let's walk from the first from the egyptians the assyrians the babylonians were all egregious okay but we don't have any believers being authorized to run tax revolts because it's an unjust taxation system. In fact, what happens, we've studied this in Matthew, Matthew's question, two, two different times. First of all, there's the issue of the temple tax, and, um, and so Jesus sends Peter to go get the fish and pulls the uh, um, coin out, to, which pays the temple tax. Who's running the temple? You know, the, basically the Jewish high priestly mafia, the family of, of Annas. He's running, he's running the temple. He's as unjust, and the whole temple structure and the priesthood is as corrupt as it can possibly be. So Jesus pays the tax. So you listen to certain people today, they say, we shouldn't pay the taxes because it's going to support a corrupt bureaucracy. I guess Jesus was wrong. Well, if Jesus was wrong, he was a sinner. If Jesus was a sinner, we don't have salvation. Let's go home. He does the same thing with the um, with the temple tax. I mean, with the um, uh, with with the tax when the uh, Pharisees come to him and they say, um, "Should we pay the tax to Caesar?" And he says, "Well, give me a coin." He says, "Whose image is on the coin?" And the image on the coin is Caesar's. He said, "Render under Caesar that which is Caesar's." And he's really making a very sophisticated theological point. He's saying, Get, "This coin, your money has Caesar's image on it. Render to Caesar." that which has his image on it, and unto God what is God's. Now, what? who is in the image of God? We are. What Jesus is saying is you give yourself. You're in the image of God. What's the, in the image of Caesar goes to Caesar. What's in the image of God, you, goes to serving God 100%. So, but he's making the point that you, give the, you pay the taxes. Is it a corrupt government? Every government's corrupt at some point. Is it fallen human beings? Yes, it is. But Jesus says you pay your taxes, uh, you, even if it is uh, goes to supporting corrupt government. 
So all of this is set up, and we saw that God raises up just and unjust rulers. Saul, uh, Isaiah calls the uh, Assyrian Sennacherib the rod of God's anger. God raised up Sennacherib for a purpose. Isaiah calls Cyrus God's anointed, raised up Cyrus for a purpose. And Jeremiah uh, Jeremiah says that Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant in Jeremiah 25, 9. Uh, but also look at Jeremiah 21, 1 through 10, because God, te- God basically tells the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, go, go, give yourselves up to Nebuchadnezzar, because I'm going to have him kill everybody in town. If you want to survive this and you want to have ble- my blessing, then go give yourself up to the enemy and you'll be safe, and you'll be prosperous, and you'll have my blessing. And what did they do? They said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to give up. We're not going to be a traitor. And so they all got killed. Jeremiah 25, 9, God says, And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. He's a corrupt unbeliever. He's an evil king at this point. He later becomes a believer, but he's God's servant because God's using him to bring discipline on Israel. So God raises up unjust men. He approves because he appoints through permissive will. He's not putting his good housekeeping stamp of approval. He's not saying Nebuchadnezzar's a righteous king, Cyrus was a righteous king, Sennacherib was a righteous king, but he's saying, I put even unrighteous people into positions of rulership because they're going to accomplish uh, my will. Um, for Samuel, we saw that Saul's an evil king, and David isn't going to raise his hand against him. First Samuel twenty four ten. I'm not going to stretch out my hand against the Lord, my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. First Samuel twenty six nine. Uh, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be uh, guiltless? Uh, Daniel four seventeen. We're told that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, God's sovereign will. Now I've heard people who say, "I just can't decide who's go- who to vote for in this election, but God's in control. I'll give it up to Him." Then quit being a Christian. Quit it. You know, do you sit at your house and say, "Oh Lord, I'm going to pray that somebody would 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 just balance my checkbook." Ten years later, you're still praying for somebody to balance your checkbook, and you're a mess, right? No, you have to at some point pick up your checkbook and start balancing it. God said, I gave you an education so you could balance your checkbook. You you might pray, oh, Lord, uh, I just need somebody to cut my grass. And you keep praying for somebody to cut your grass, and the Lord says, I gave you a lawnmower. Cut your grass. Okay? Uh, We have to vote. You don't just opt out because you're a pansy, weenie believer. You have to vote. It's your responsibility. Make a decision. But don't opt out and say, oh, God, it, it, you know, God will overrule everything. He doesn't act like that. That is a blasphemous statement against God to just bail out in that manner. I'm sorry I'm angry, but I'm tired of this kind of pusillanimous talk from believers who ought to know better. You can't bail out and just say, oh, God's in control. That is mysticism, that is pacifism, and that is irresponsibility and a failure in the Christian life. Okay, Daniel 4.17, the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, but in the kingdom of men they make personal volitional decisions which carry things in one direction or the other. It's both. God rules, we also exercise our volition. Uh, Habakkuk Habakkuk recognizes that God raises up even the evil Chaldeans to do his will. Okay? That's the background. Remember all those things. Now, how do we answer this question? 
How do we answer this, this basic question? And I'm going to restructure it just a little bit. Were the founding fathers justified in not submitting to the British government? Were they justified in not submitting to the British government? Let me, um, I want to refer to this paper because in terms of the historical facts, I think that David Barton has brought out a lot of good historical research as to uh, what was going on uh, in, among the founding fathers and during the uh, generation of the War for Independence. And uh, as he does so, it helps us to understand how how the founding fathers answered this question when they went to the Bible. That's really the question. When they went to the Bible, how were they interpreting the Bible to justify their disobedience, their, their lack of submission to the king of England? Well, as I started to say earlier, this idea of when do we submit and when are we justified in not submitting has been the focus of tremendous theological discussion, papers, books, sermons, for at least uh, two centuries since the Protestant Reformation, because uh, you, you had uh, your life on the line. But what you were putting your life on the line for was the truth of the gospel. It wasn't for a, a political position. It wasn't in relation to statutes related to uh, various laws or taxation or the extent of the authority of the parliament or the king. They were in that those founding generations. When you're talking about Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and uh, others, that's what you were focusing on was, do I have a right, when the king says, I can't preach the gospel, do I have a right to disobey the king and preach the gospel? And the answer was yes. But we have to be careful as I go through this. Remember, there are differences between a direct command for, from God to do something and the king telling you not to do something, or the Bible saying don't do something, and the government telling you to do something. Those are the distinct. That's where civil disobedience exists. What are the examples? Think about this a minute. Think about this. I want you to, that's part of your test. What are the biblical examples that you can think of that where individual believers disobeyed the king? What's the first clear example? Midwives in Exodus. What's another clear example? Daniel. Daniel. You have Daniel. Uh, first of all, you have the diet issue in Daniel chapter 1, and he appeals to the head of the eunuchs to say, give us a chance to, our, we'll try out our diet, your guys go on their diet, and after a few weeks we'll see who's doing better. And uh, that was an, one way to approach the conflict, uh, was to, to, to do that, and God gave him a favor in the eyes of the chief of the eunuchs. Then you had the situation uh, in Daniel chapter 2 where you had uh, Nebuchadnezzar putting up the big statue that everybody had to fall down and, and worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no, I'm not going to bow down. 
and they're going to take the consequences and they get thrown into the fiery furnace. And they had the right attitude. They said, even if God doesn't deliver us, we're going to do the right thing. So they're going to, they're not going to bow down and worship an idol. That would be a direct violation of what the scripture says. And so they do what the word of God says, as opposed to uh, what the king says. Then you have the example of Daniel. So you have three examples there. Um, what's another example? Hmm? Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah does the right thing in spite of what the king says. Uh, he's constantly got opposition from the king, and he continues to uh, preach the word and proclaim what God says for him to proclaim. Then you have another, in the New Testament, you have Peter and John, of course. That's good. Those are the examples. But remember, it's always the person in authority, the king, the government, telling the individual believer that you either have to do something that the Bible says you don't have to do, or you do something, you, ha- uh, you don't do something the Bible says you're supposed to do. So as a result of the conflicts that occurred in the 1500s in these tremendous religious wars that took place, uh, people were persecuted, they were burned at the stake. Bloody Mary wasn't called Bloody Mary because she liked to mix tomato juice with vodka, Bloody Mary was called Bloody Mary because she she had so many Protestants burned at the stake for preaching the gospel, okay? And she was a Roman Catholic and was trying to turn England back away from Protestantism to the Roman Catholic Church. There were uh, there was a tremendous massacre in France, the St. Bar- Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, where 110,000 Protestant believers were uh, were killed, were slaughtered by uh, by the French. You had a number of these kinds of instances. Now, this is what David Barton says. He says, facing such civil opposition, Reformation leaders turned to the Bible and found much guidance on the subject of civil disobedience and resistance to tyr- tyrannical civil authority. Okay, now what? Uh, this is a paragraph. Barton is telling us what occurred. He's summarizing their viewpoint, okay? There's nothing wrong with what Barton is saying. Uh, It's not expressing an opinion. He's telling us what, what their view was. He says, in fact, numerous famous heroes of the Bible, including many of those listed in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, as well as in other passages, were accorded their special position of honor because they committed civil disobedience, Daniel, the three Hebrew children, that would be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't children. Uh, the Hebrew midwives, Rahab, that was another one, we left out Rahab, uh, Moses, etc., and the apostles in Acts 4 and 5, also declared their willingness to be civilly disobedient against tyrannical commands of civil and religious rulers. But he's too broad, isn't he? See, it's not just against tyrannical commands, it's specific kinds of tyrannical commands. There are all kinds of tyrannical commands that can come down from a person in authority over you, whether it's a husband, a parent, uh, an employer at work. They can have all kinds of tyrannical commands. They can tell you to do all kinds of things that you don't want to do. Your drill sergeant, if you were in the military, might be a real tyrant, but you did what he had to say. But he wasn't telling you to violate the Scripture, okay? That's what happens here. You have to watch these guys because they go to categories, and then they slide back and forth because they're not being specific enough. So we have to keep that in mind. 
Now, then he goes on to say some of the important theological works on the subject of civil disobedience and resistance published during that time included two works, the 1556 book, Short Treatise of Politic Power, and of the true obedience which subjects owe to the kings and other civil governors. They didn't have short titles back then. Their books won't sell today because their titles are longer than what most people's attention span is. Uh, that was in uh, by the B- Bishop John Poinet, uh, who wrote that in 1556, and um, the 1579 publication of a book called The Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants, published by the French Reformation theologian Philippe Duplessis Mornay. Um, so that's in 1579. Now, it's important to understand these, and the reason is, is that both of these books were highly influential on the thinking of the founding fathers when it came to disobeying civil authority. In fact, John Adams highly recommended to people that they read and study both of these works. Okay? So it's these two works. If their theology is good, it's a good influence. If their theology and biblical exegesis is not good, uh, we got problems in River City. Guess what? Their theology and biblical exegesis isn't up to snuff. Okay? We got problems in River City because these mid-16th centuries, they, when do they write? They're writing in 1556 and 1579. They are barely a generation be, be, beyond Sola Scriptura and Martin Luther's call to go back to a literal Reformation. In 1579, they were still burning people, theologians at the stake if they thought that Jews ought to go back to their historic homeland. They were still caught up in Christian anti-Semitism. They were still primarily they were still primarily amillennial. You don't start premillennialism until just right about the end of the 1500s. So you see their theology is still in a very formative state at that particular time and they're going to make some some uh fundamental uh fundamental er- errors in the process. So what happens is that um, uh, basically you get a, by the early 1600s, you have the conflict between the Puritans in England and Elizabeth dies and James VI of Scotland becomes the King of England is James I. We remember him in the title of, of the translation he authorized, the King James Version or the Authorized Version. And he and the Stuart kings held to a view of monarchical authority that was referred to, this is what's on the left, as the divine right of kings. That meant when the king spoke, it was the voice of God. Christians are required to submit. This was the view. If This was one view. You basically have two options as far as, um, as, far as Poine. And who is the other guy? As far as Poinet and Mornay are, are, are thinking, you only have two options, folks. You only have option one. Christians are required to submit blindly to every law and policy of the government. That's how they interpreted Romans 13, 1 through 7, and, and 1 Peter 2 is you have to submit blindly to every law and policy of the government. Is that what those passages teach? No. 
It is not. So that's a that is false. That's that's a false view. It's not a biblical view. The second view, and there were others that came along. There were a number of uh, denominational leaders: Presbyterians, Lutherans, Baptists, Congregationalists, and others who came who were influenced by Poinet and Mornay, and they took the view that God is for government, but He's not for anarchy. See, they interpret those passages to say God established government to promote order in society. He didn't establish anarchy. So it's not the person who holds the office. God just instituted the office. So if the person who holds the office is a tyrant, then you can get rid of him without being an anarchist. You can still hold to the the institution of government, and you kick the bastard out, or you kill him. You cut off his head like they did with Charles I. Is that biblical? No. That's bad exegesis, because both Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 are saying that it's both the office and the individual that are uh, installed by God through either his active or his permissive will. So... That view was that God established the institutions of government but does not approve of every government. Well, he, that, that's not the issue. The issue isn't does God approve of every government. It has God... It, it, see, they change what the Scripture says. The Scripture says God established the authorities, and, and this is the ordinance of God. He's established the authorities, not just the office, but the one in it. It doesn't say God approved of them, that they were all righteous. Now, where this is going to go is very significant because in the thinking of the, of the English Puritans, in the thinking of uh, people like John Locke and others who are in, influenced by that kind of thinking, you get the idea that if the king is not just, who's defining justice? If the king's laws are not just then we have a right to be civilly disobedient and to get rid of the person in the office. But see, they've expanded the category of civil disobedience from the government telling you to do something the Bible prohibits or the government uh, telling you not to do something that the Bible mandates to any law, whether it's a criminal law, whether it's a civil law, whether it is an economic law, They've expanded that so that if you as a citizen think that the tax laws are unjust, then you have a right to be civilly, to band together and overthrow the king because it doesn't fit your idea of injustice. But if that's true, then you've got a real problem with Peter and, and, and with Jesus. And let me tell you, there are some people on the Internet that the exegetical and theological somersaults they have to do to justify their 180 degree wrong interpretation they just they take jesus said um render under caesar that which is caesar's but that's not what he meant and you read these guys and you go you're saying that white is black and black is white you're just going through these 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 somersaults to justify what you your your previously held political philosophy 
and you're not listening to the Bible, you have adopted a political philosophy and you have to interpret the Bible through the grid of that political philosophy. And you're not paying attention to the fact that Jesus is authorizing and, and saying that you have to pay taxes even if it goes into a corrupt system because that, that is um, consistent with God's establishment of the authorities. Barton says about this, this dichotomy, and see, see, according to their view, you only have these two options. And at the top of the slide, I said, this is the fallacy of the excluded middle. Neither option is a biblically correct option. But that's all. Our founding fathers just saw those two options. They didn't, because of the way they did exegesis and theology at the time, they're, they're, they're told by these theologians that Jephthah and Gideon and um, Deborah and Samson were all overthrowing tyranny. Is that true? Were they overthrowing tyranny? Were they, were they like the founding fathers overthrowing the tyranny of, of, of a foreign, uh, it wasn't a foreign government, they were, they were English citizens. See what, what Gideon and, and Barak and Ehud and, and Samson and Jephthah were doing was it was a long war against these foreign powers who were trying to totally take control of Israel. And they're throwing off these foreign powers. They're, they are defeating them. It's war. It, it's not that they're overthrowing a tyrant. Uh, for example, you might think that Jeroboam the first or Jeroboam the second was a tyrant, and they were. Uh, but you don't find the Jews overthrowing them. But that's what um, uh, that would be uh, the correct analogy. But they're not. They're throwing, overthrowing foreign powers that have come in and have temporarily won the battle, but they haven't won the war. So David Barton says, therefore, a crucial determination in the colonist biblical exegesis was whether opposition to authority was simply to resist the general institution of government. See, that was wrong. That, in their view, you don't resist the general institution of government because that's anarchy. You have to support that. Or whether it was intent instead to resist tyrannical leaders who had themselves rebelled against God. That's okay. If Nero's rebelled against God, then it's okay to overthrow Nero. Where do you get that from the Bible? You don't get that from the Bible. He goes on to say, the scriptural model for this position was repeatedly validated. See, the, he's, he is summarizing for us what uh, Monet and, um, and Poinet said. The scriptural model for this position was repeatedly validated when God himself raised up leaders such as Gideon, Ehud, Jephthah, Samson, and Deborah to throw off tyrannical governments. Is that correct? That is not correct. So the books that are influencing them are fallaciously using examples from the Old Testament to justify their position. But that's not what's happening. So the evidence supporting their contention is false. So their contention is false. And their contention is it's okay to overthrow tyrannical leaders because all God wants you to do is respect the office not respect the person he's put in the office. So he says, um, leaders subsequently praised in Hebrews 11.32 for those acts of faith. 
that the founders held the view that the institution of government is not to be opposed by, ty- by that tyranny is the position that is clearly evidenced in their writings. And so that's how they're un- they understand it, and that, that, that justifies their position. If it's okay to, to throw out the tyrant and still respect government, then you haven't violated the biblical command. But the problem is that's not what the Bible says. So they were operating on a false, on, on a false presupposition. Now, the issue of this issue of, of uh, America being rebellious. Let me expand on this ju- just a little bit. Um, John Quincy Adams was asked about whether Americans were a nation of anarchy and rebellion. Remember how they view anarchy and rebellion. That's not um, that that is viewed as taking out the tyrant, but you you're not anarchical if you still believe in government. So John Quincy Adams said, maybe I think I, I thought I had this quote. Maybe we'll get to it later. I'm out, out of order. There was no anarchy. The people of North American Union and its constituent states were associated bodies of civilized men and Christians in a state of nature, but not of anarchy. Now that's a really important state. It's not anarchy because we weren't against government. We immediately established our own government. So see, we, we're not rebellious against government because we established our own. But they were rebellious against the individuals who were, who were in the government. Um, there was a Reverend uh, Jacob Duchesne who was a British supporter who ironically defended the, 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 the uh, position of the Americans. Now, pay attention to what he says here. He says, Inasmuch as all rulers are, in fact, the servants of the public and appointed for no other purpose than to be, quote, a terror to evildoers and a praise to them that do well, see Romans 13.3, whenever this divine order is inverted, that is, when you get a tyrant in the office, whenever these rulers abuse their sacred trust by unrighteous attempts to injure, oppress, and enslave those very persons from whom alone under God their power is derived, does not humanity, does not reason, does not scripture call upon the man, the citizen, the Christian of such a community to, quote, stand fast in that liberty wherewith Christ hath made them free, Galatians 5.1. Has he accurately quoted Galatians 5.1 to support his position? No, not at all. He's cherry-picked a verse that has the words liberty and freedom in it. So this doesn't support his position at all. He goes on to say, The apostle enjoins us to, quote, submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, but, close quote, but surely, he says, a submission to the unrighteous ordinances of unrighteous men. Now, what does he mean by unrighteous ordinances? He means, you know, the Townsend Acts. He means the Confiscatory Acts. He means unjust taxation. He means quartering soldiers in people's homes. He means various things like that. But none of those things contradict a specific command of Scripture. So, see, what he is saying is he's comparing apples and oranges here, and he's saying uh, surely submission to unrighteous ordinances. Now, an unrighteous ordinance would be like when Queen Mary says you can't preach the gospel. That is biblically an unrighteous ordinance. It's telling people that they can't do what God told them to do. Okay? So, 
there's a quote from from um, John Quincy Adams, uh, which I just read. So this this is the issue when we look at this in terms of how the framers understood this. We have to conclude that un, that according to their understanding of Romans thirteen, the American Revolution was not an act of anarchy. It wasn't an act of rebellion. It was an act of resistance to a government that violated the biblical purposes for which God had ordained civil government. But what about what about Claudius and what about Caligula and what about Nero and what about Tiberius and what about Hadrian and and what about all the all the other Roman emperors and what about uh, many other rulers in history. What about the pharaohs? See, it, it, it just—it's—it's it's logically and historically invalid and inconsistent. So, but they—they they went through this this hoop because this is what was had become the theologically accepted interpretation of Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. And and in some quarters, we're seeing that kind of interpretation uh, resurrected today in order to justify a wrong kind of civil disobedience. But that's not what the, what, what the Scripture teaches. Now, on the other side, what we do have, which is, um, I don't know why people go through all these, you know, the, these these jump through these hoops to try to justify this, when if you look at and examine... Uh, what was actually taking place on the ground, that there were a lot of legitimate grievances. There were a lot of inconsistencies. The, the British government uh, violated their own laws. They gave their uh, Americans a second-class citizenship. There were many kinds of things that were that were wrong on the part of the British government. And for over 11 years, the colonial leaders were meeting with the crown to try to rectify, justify these. And the crown just resisted it completely until the point the crown shut down the negotiations. And then in retaliation for things that were done wrong, such as the Tea Party. Now let's say something about the Tea Party. What happened is that the um, the, 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 the Far East uh, or the East Asia Tea Company is uh, uh, falling on hard times, and so the government is going to, to prop up the tea industry uh, which is which is bad economics, um, and they are going to put an uh, what they thought was an egregious tax on the tea. Now, if they got upset over that little bitty tax, then then we would all be throwing everybody into Galveston Bay because we have to pay eight and a half to ten percent sales tax on different things, and that's much worse than the the, the tax that was being put on the tea. And in other cities, in Charleston, in the South, and Baltimore, and other cities, they just turned these ships back, and they sent them back. They sent the tea back. But in Boston, the leaders in Boston made a bad decision. They said, no, we're not going to yield to what the patriots want. We're not going let it, to let it go back. So what the patriots did was they violated their own standards. What was their standard? To protect private property. And they destroyed the private property of the East India Tea Company by dumping all of that tea into uh, Boston Harbor. Two wrongs don't make a right. A right thing done in a wrong way is always wrong. It's just very simple ethics. 
And so they violate this. What this does, and this is why things like this are such a messy kind of thing to work through, and why, you know, when I was in high school, I was I always held the one view that it's a war for independence and we're totally justified. And later on, I've gone back and forth and forth and back as I've read all kinds of different stuff over the years, and a lot of others have as well. Um, because there were some right, th- right things done the right way, and there were some right things done the wrong way, and the right things done the wrong way exacerbated uh, some of these particular, uh, particular problems. But as things got heated, what happened was England sent troops in, uh, especially into the Boston area. They forced people to quarter the troops in their homes, and then they sent out arrest warrants for... For John Adams and John Hancock, they went out to stay at the home of, J- of uh, Jonas Clark, who was the pastor of the church in Lexington. And there was also the, the, the there was also the desire to take away the arms from the from the uh, 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 colonists, so they couldn't protect themselves to vi- violate the uh, their their ability to to self defense. It's on the frontier; Indians could attack. All kinds of other things could take place. And so they sent troops out. All those troops that that uh, uh, Paul Revere was announcing were coming. Um, Paul Revere rides out to Lexington to warn them that the British are coming. You know, the British are coming. The British are coming, and um, and, and and that led to uh, violation. It led to um, the Americans defending themselves. And you get into a big discussion: who fired the first shot? Barton argues that that at no point did the colonists start anything. I don't know that that's demonstrable. But it doesn't have to be. If the British are invading and uh, are, are forcing a, a march onto Lexington and Concord like that, that is, that is an attack on the colonists, then it doesn't matter who fires the first shot. The scenario has been set up where the colonists have a right of self-defense. And just as the Israelis took the initiative in the 67 war, knowing that the Egyptians were about to attack, and the Egyptians had all their air force out on the on their uh, at the air force bases ready to launch that day before they ever attacked the Israelis uh, came in and destroyed the Egyptian air force on the ground in a preemptive strike and so no it doesn't matter who fired the first shot if the Americans did great it was a preemptive strike in a situation where they were already being 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 threatened so that that there is a an argument to legitimize it that British were the aggressors, not the Americans, and it was a war of self defense because what happens is you have this negotiation that goes on year after year uh year after year after year in order to avoid any kind of bloodshed and it's the British who shut down the negotiation and it's the British who sent the military in that exacerbated the whole situation. So that brings us to a conclusion. Now, uh, I don't know if anybody has any questions on this or not, but I know this is a question, an issue that a lot of people have talked about. So uh, does anybody have any questions? Yeah, Mark. What about a leader of the government of your country that assumes power in an illegal manner? How, what, how, can, how far can you legitimately go to resist that? It depends on the circumstances. Well, see, what happens with Hitler is Hitler manages to use the law in his favor in order to gain the chancellorship and to gain the presidency. 
And that's the problem when you have evil people is they get they get the 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 government that that authorizes and legalizes it's a problem we have with the Supreme Court. Now we can argue all day long, we can go back to Marburg and we can do all kinds of things and say no the, the Supreme Court shouldn't do that. Well, we lost that battle what 170 years ago. It's de facto whether it's de jure or not is irrelevant. It is de facto the law of the land. And the Supreme Court determines what the law is. We've let that happen for 80 years. It's, it's the way it goes. I mean, government deteriorates. A lot of this thinking on America is that, that we're, somehow we're protected in the eternal plan of God and we're always going to be a city shining on a hill. And that's just that's a false romanticism that has influenced a lot of people. Every nation goes downhill sooner or later because of corruption and because of the sin nature. So I, I don't know. I think it's got every example we have in Scripture is a really clear cut and dried situation. And what we usually come up with in scenarios is not clear cut and dried. It's it, it gets very, very fuzzy because the other side is very sophisticated. Governments what? A lot of illegal governments start riots that the people can't stand it anymore. The, yeah, two wrongs don't make it right. To go out and riot in opposition to the government destroys property, and that doesn't make it right. That's what was wrong with the Tea Party. It destroyed personal property. Their, their, what was their value? Their value was to uphold the right of personal property, and then they went out and destroyed it. They violated their own ethic. You can't do that. That's the hard thing about having an ethic as a Christian. We have a standard, and we can't do things that the other side is always going to do. That's one reason I think the Republicans at some level are always going to be ineffective is because that at some level there are Republicans who still have a standard of right and wrong, and they won't stoop to the level of the other side. Well, there's a few. You know who some of them are. But there have been more in the past. There have been a lot more in the past. So I think that's that's limited, not so much today. But that's the issue. It's hard. But remember, when you start talking about the, the, the slave or the servant obeying the master, it's the same principle. In, in, in fact, First Peter says, even if the master is abusing the servant, the servant needs to respect him and obey him. Now, you just... That's got to be consistent with how you interpret the obedience to the government. They can't be talking about two totally different situations. The concept of submission to authority, even if that authority is wrong, goes all the way through Scripture unless the wrong is a direct violation of a righteous, direct righteous command of Scripture. And that's why it's so difficult, because your little sin nature and my little sin nature just doesn't want to put up with it. We get on our self-righteous high horse and say that's wrong. And it is. But that doesn't give us the right to follow in Satan's rebellious footsteps. And that's the ultimate issue. That's why authority is such a central issue in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, is because this, the violation of God's authority, is the original sin. And it doesn't make it easy. Trust me. I would love to be able to say, yeah, we need to go do X, Y, or Z because it's wrong. That appeals to my sin nature. 
It appeals for some of your sin nature. I know this. But that's what the scripture, what we got to deal with what the Bible says and not what we, what we feel like. Okay, John. Uh, question. Uh, are we now to consider our Constitution a dead letter? We had Thomas Jefferson uh, uh, gave us the uh, uh, Kentucky and Virginia resolutions in which the states had the authority under the Constitution to uh, challenge the federal government that's correct. That's correct. There, there are systems within there where the states are supposed to challenge the federal government, but if we can't get leaders to do it, that's the problem. We've basically nullified the Constitution by being ignorant of it and by having leaders that won't use it. That was a good question. What John asked was was had to do with uh, Jefferson and and what what. Well, the Kentucky and Virginia resolution. Okay, I can't I can't hear you that clearly, so I can't repeat the question. But um, yeah, it's it, it's it's. I, th- I think you're right. I think that 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 legally the Constitution has certain certain provisions within it. Like what is it? The Tenth Amendment is that the one that um, Perry and others are trying to get the states to call a convention of the states? Uh, no, that's the uh, Article Five. Article Five. That's right. You know me. I'm not good with numbers. Article Five. I think that's right. We have to utilize what's in the law. We have to do that. We have to be smart. We have to be like a Daniel. And unfortunately, we don't have too many Christian leaders who can function like a Daniel. And, um, and that, that, that will call, but we have to get behind. There are a lot of options. It's whether or not anybody wants to really take the options. Yeah, Alan. Well, the, the declaration pretty well laid out why they were uh, separating from the crown and there was nothing in there about revolt or anything. And then we weren't overthrowing the crown either. We were just separating ourselves. Well, see, that's why I said it's not about revolt. As soon as you bring the word revolt in, you change the conversation. Nothing in there about revolt, even in the Declaration of Independence. I, I know, but the issue is, are you justified in submitting to the authority? Is the, is the governor of Massachusetts a representative of Parliament and the king? If the answer is yes... And it applies not just to his office, but to him as a as a the person who holds that office. Then whatever he's uh, enforcing, that is that comes from the king in Parliament, we have to submit to. That's what First Peter says: submit to the king and to his governors. And and they didn't want to submit at one level, but remember, but they negotiated, they fought. It wasn't just that. It was when when it broke down and England sends troops in, they're taking the initiative. That's where I think the justification lies. It's not in the rationale that they gave that, well, you can, you can revolt against the person but not against the office. That gets into a that, – that's why I stay away from that word revolt. Air, when you read the revolt argument, that revolt argument is based on the assumption – that we didn't overthrow the king, we don't overthrow the office, we just got rid of the person. Whether, it, whether he's still there or not is irrelevant. That's, that's the argument, and that argument doesn't hold water. It's logically flawed, it's exegetically flawed, it's built on a theologically flawed argument. Uh, it just doesn't work. So that's why I said stay away from the revolt question. The real issue is, is as it was framed to me, is is a believer, when is a believer justified 
and not submitting to authority? That's the real question. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think through these things, and, and it's not always easy, and, and it's, it's difficult, um, but we recognize that, as the Scripture tells us, that all authorities are established by you, and that involves not only the office, but it also involves the people that are in it. You, Whether they are just or unjust, you have allowed many unjust authorities to rise to positions of power, and you have used them through your permissive will to accomplish your will. And, Father, we have to learn to uh, live in light of that and su- submit to your will. And, Father, we pray for this nation. We pray that you would raise up uh, leaders who are wise, like Daniel, and leaders who uh, can can fight for the truth and recovery of the Constitution uh, based on the provisions that are within the Constitution. But we also recognize that we're in a spiritual warfare, and the forces that are arrayed against us are are just incredible and that it may already be too late to do anything um, because of what has already taken place. And we may be past the point of no return, but we're not past the point of no return in terms of your plan or your purpose, and therefore we have hope. Even as Jeremiah looked at the smoldering ruins of of Jerusalem around him, he, he said, This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope that it is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And therefore, we should not ever look at the circumstances as a way of uh, as something to get us down, but always focus on your character and your plan because that lifts us up and focuses us on a hopeful, positive, victorious eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.